You've spoken through your word now, Lord. And I pray that as we unpack these verses that you would speak directly to our hearts in such a manner that would evoke within us a desire to change and to be, become more pleasing to you. Especially, Father, I pray that you would expose any idols in our hearts, things that we gravitate toward you to receive what you have promised to give from yourself. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in the transformation of many. I pray especially for any here who is lost and who knows not the deep love of Christ and the happiness and joy that comes from living in fellowship with you and having you as their God alone. Oh, Father, may you grant them salvation today and cause them to be born again by your Spirit and for your glory. For we pray this by the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're in John chapter 4 once again. And we've been studying together the narrative of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. But before we pick up where we left off last time, I want to direct your attention back to a text that was written 500 years previous to John chapter 4. And to see that, we have to go a little bit to the left and find the prophet Jeremiah. After the Psalms, Isaiah. After Isaiah is Jeremiah. And turn to chapter 2. Isaiah, I'm sorry, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. For background on this passage, you remember we talked a little bit about this last week. You might recall that the people of Israel had rebelled against the Lord and were about to be invaded by Babylon and taken captive by them for 70 years. And the reason for that was because the Lord had promised that that's what he would do if they abandoned him. And so what would happen? Well, their precious temple was to be destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem demolished, and everything else in the city of Jerusalem would be burned. Here in chapter 2, however, the Lord explains why this judgment is about to fall upon them. And so let's hear about the why of God's judgment beginning in verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. Follow along with me now as I read. Therefore... I will contend with you, he's speaking to Judah, declares the Lord, and with your sons also I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit them. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder and be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the only place in Scripture I know of where God calls the entire cosmos to come and witness a specific kind of sin. It was a sin so terrible that it warranted the destruction of an entire nation. What was that sin? Well, actually, there were two sins that corresponded to each other. The first was this, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And the second was like to it. 
They have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, clearly, the term fountain of living water and the term broken cisterns were metaphors of some spiritual truth. It's our job to figure out what truths he's speaking of. And it's not hard to see here. These terms are, are offered, they offer us an important contrast between God, who is the fountain of living waters, and something else that is referred to by Jeremiah as broken cisterns. The question is, what does the broken cistern represent? We know the fountain of living water represents God himself. The people have abandoned him, and they have gone after something that he refers to as broken cisterns. What is that? Well, of course, the answer is hinted at in the fact that both of these have something to do with water. Fountains and cisterns are, are both sources of drinking water, presumably. On the one hand, there is an equally obvious contrast between the two. A fountain is a perpetual source of cool, clear water, while a cistern is, is not much more, really, than an open container of gradually stagnating water. And furthermore, these cisterns mentioned here are, are not only containers, open containers of water, but they, they're described differently as well. There's another characteristic about them that needs to be noted. They are broken. They're cracked. They leak. And so what is it God saying to Israel? He's saying that the sin of his people, which is so terrible that he calls the entire cosmos to come and witness it, is the fact that his people have turned their backs on him, the fountain of living waters. And instead of him, they have turned themselves, they have turned their hearts to something that falsely promises to quench the deep thirst of their souls. What were these broken cisterns? these people had hewn for themselves. In a word, they were false gods. They were idols. This was a reference to idolatry. The theme here is the human capacity, the human propensity, the human need to worship. This is all about worship. This text is all about worship. And here it is about the worship of false gods. He specifically mentions in this chapter, worshiping the God of Baal. And there are many gods in Israel. When we read the Old Testament, as so many of you probably are right now, at least portions of the Old Testament, I hope you are. I hope you're not just picking at the Bible verse by verse. I hope you're taking large chunks of it throughout the week and meditating on them. But when we look at the Old Testament in particular, we see something that might cause confusion in you if you're thinking about it, and that is this. As you read the Old Testament, what you find again and again is God's people are constantly giving themselves over to false gods, to idols. You remember, there's Baal, there's, there's uh, Molech, there's the Ashtoreth, uh, there's the high places, there's all kinds of different gods that are mentioned some of them, uh, the people were sacrificing their children to. Uh, you remember one of them was the golden calf at, at, the, um, at, the, at Mount Sinai when God was giving the law, and everyone bowed down to the calf. And we read that kind of stuff, and we think, what is that about? 
I mean, in reference to my life, can't remember the last time I bowed down to a cow. Um, maybe Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but um, I can't, <laughs> that's not in the notes. I can't remember the last time I actually bowed down before an idol. What in the world does any of this have to do with me? And that's a great question. Let me just tell you, the Old Testament is not irrelevant. Because throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the areas where it speaks of idolatry, it is laying bare the hidden motivations and desires of my heart and yours. You know what our problem is? Our problem is a sin problem, but it's more specific than that. Our hearts tend to wander not away from a God, not away from worship, but to a perverted kind of worship that turns its back on the living God and embraces something else that it desires, something that seems more desirable than God. More desirable than God. Let that sink in. There are things in your life that your sinful heart deems more desirable than God. What are those things? Well, we would understand this a little better if we understood what an idol is. Whether it's a golden calf, a totem pole, a, a charm you wear around your neck or whatever it is. What is an idol? Martin Luther deftly explains, he says, a false god is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him with our whole heart. As I have often said, Luther writes, the trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. That to which our heart clings and entrusts itself, I say, really is your God. The question is, where does your heart run? To what does your heart cling? In moments of trial, in moments of temptation, in moments of boredom. When you lay down at, on your bed at night and have nothing else to think about, where does your mind go? What do you naturally gravitate toward that you think, this is the source of my comfort, this is my refuge, this is my happiness? And perhaps a way to explain it that's consistent with what Jeremiah is saying here, his analogy is this. An idol is anything to which we look to quench the nagging thirst of our souls. Think of it this way. God created you to worship. You have no choice. You will worship. You do worship. I have been to um, Arlington Stadium, formerly called the ballpark in Arlington, where the Rangers play baseball. I have been there with some of you. And I have seen you worship with joy and excitement and hands lifted, sometimes in anger, sometimes in joy. You're totally in it. You make sacrifices. You sing their praises. If they're your favorite team, you talk about them. You know what that's called? 
worship. Others of you worship bluebell ice cream. Or work. Or sex. Some of you find delight first thing in the morning, not in God, but in Facebook. What I'm suggesting to you is there's a reason you do what you do. The reason you do what you do is because you want what you want. And what do you want? You want whatever you believe is going to bring you happiness, comfort, joy. The question is, what is that thing? And is it God? Is it God? Another way of saying this is, is this. There's, there's a, a, many different angles at this, but maybe this will help if we come at it from several different ways. An idol is anything to which you look to find your identity, meaning, and purpose in this life other than God. Now, let me explain that. Moms, uh, whether you're homeschooled or whether you're public school or whatever, you have a special bond with your children. You love them. And you should. You should not worship them. You say, you've got to be kidding me. People do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. If your home revolves around your children, if your life revolves around your children, if your greatest happiness is in your children, if you think, if my children go off somewhere to college, my life is kind of over, then that's the object of your worship. Men, if... If the place that you find meaning, the meaning of your life, your identity is in your work, I'm not saying if you work hard, you should work hard. But if you find your identity there so that when you come home to your house, you feel like a stranger there and don't know who you are or what to do, you might want to think about that. Your work may be your God. When you wake up in the morning, do you think about your work? When you go to bed at night, are you thinking about your work? Or when you're home, are you thinking about your work? I would suggest to you that the reason you're thinking about it is because that's where you find delight. That's where your happiness is. That is your broken cistern. Young people, you have a girlfriend, boyfriend, or one? Praise God for that. That may be a godly desire. But be careful. If that's all you think about, it may be your God. Ladies, if you're at home and you're so concerned with how your home looks that you have purchased every appointment you can fit into your house, every, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Appointment's not a good one. Accessory. If you accessorize your home constantly, and that's what you think about, if I can just make my home a beautiful place, so much so that your, your, parent, your, your family is thinking, this, is, this doesn't feel like home anymore, this feels like a museum. And we're not sure we feel welcome here. And maybe your home is your idol. Maybe it has become your God. Well, anything can become an idol to us. An idol can be anything at all. The question is, what do you turn... To what do you turn to satisfy the thirst of your soul? Is it money? Is it sports, sex, work, children, retirement, nest egg? 
Is it education? Is it your title, your respect? Is it love, peace, order? Is it the adrenaline rush? Movies, books, drugs, alcohol, they're all in the same category. They're varying levels of addiction. I wouldn't put Pinterest on the same level as heroin, but sometimes. When you're lonely or afraid or dissatisfied or just plain bored, to what does your heart run? We like to sing a song. The men love to sing this in, uh, when, when we meet for various occasions. We tend to gravita gravitate to the song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know why? You know why we like that song? Because it reminds us of the danger we're in. Lord, my heart, my heart. You know what John Calvin called our hearts? Factories of idols. Factories of idols. When you're alone or dissatisfied or just plain bored, to what do you run? That, my friend, whatever that is, is probably your functional God, your functional Savior. But the sad truth is, looking to anything else but to God to quench the thirst of your soul, to find your identity, meaning, and purpose in life, if you look to anything else other than God to satisfy your soul, you're going to find what the woman at the well found. None of it satisfies. None of it satisfies. Nothing else can satisfy you the way God satisfies you because he designed you to be satisfied in him. Other things may not make as many demands upon your life. Others, uh, other things may promise you immediate pleasure and excitement or diversion. But in God's eyes, if you're looking at them for the things that God has provided, they are nothing but broken cisterns. They leak. They can't hold the living water. They cannot hold life. They make promises that they can't fulfill. And in the end, you're going to find yourself just as thirsty as you were before. And then rather than turning to the Lord, we carve out for ourselves a new cistern hoping that this time it will provide what our souls need. And we can do this with anything. We can do it with anything. You know why bank accounts never satisfy? There's a reason for that. They leak. <laughs> Mine does. Mine's got a big hole in it. You know why relationships? Do you know why your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or your wife make terrible gods, they leak. You know why your job, your hobby, your attempts at fame, respect, and love make lousy gods? It's because they leak. They can't hold water. They can't hold the things that satisfy your soul. They are not a source. They are not the source of living water. The human soul was never designed to find its identity, meaning, and purpose in anything except God. God has hardwired us in such a way that our souls are only able to find lasting satisfaction, lasting identity, meaning, and purpose in God. That's why Augustine wrote these words, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you.
the age-old problem. John chapter 4 is a classic story of a woman who looked to broken cisterns to quench the thirsty soul that she had until Jesus stepped into her broken world and offered her the fountain of living water. Last time we concluded in verse 14, let's turn back to John chapter 4. We concluded in verse 14 where Jesus said to the woman these words, Whoever drinks the water that I will give shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So far we've seen in last week's message the context, the encounter, the concern, and now the confrontation. The confrontation. In verse 15, the woman responds to what Jesus just said. And she, here's Jesus offering her living water, and, and she says this, Lord, give me this water. That sounds good, right? I mean, if you're an evangelist, that's what, what you want to hear. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me this water. But she doesn't stop there. Here's why she wants the water. So that I will not have to be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. But she doesn't get it. She knows that whatever he is offering sounds amazing. Sounds like she's not going to have to walk as far. Sounds like she's going to have a source, I mean, right there that comes to her. She doesn't have to go to it. Give me some of that. But note this, beloved, she wants the living water, but she wants it for the wrong reason. And just as an aside, we need to be so careful when we're offering people the gospel. Don't tell them the gospel is God has a wonderful plan for your life. He may not. He may want them to die for him. Don't tell them God will make your marriage better. He might but it might get really, really bad as a result of that person coming to faith in Christ or repenting of the sin that they both love. That's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel isn't God going to make your business better. It's not you're going to make more money. Your bank account's going to get better. It's not any of those things. The promise of the gospel is this, that God will forgive you all of your sin and that you can be reconciled with God you can drink from the living water. In other words, from him you get eternal life. That's what the living water is. And life meaning life with God in heaven and life now. Hence, we come back to identity, meaning, and purpose. And you know what? If you know your identity in Christ and you're living it, you understand why God created you and you're living that. You understand your purpose in life. You can be anything. You can be a dentist, you can be a park ranger, you can be a plumber, you can be a student, you can be a doctor, you can be a janitor, and you will know life because you will have life. And it won't be wrapped up in what you do. It will be wrapped up in who you are in Christ. She wanted the water. She wanted it for the wrong reason. She thought Jesus was offering her a better supply of H2O. But Jesus is not offering her water to drink with your mouth. He's offering you water to drink with your heart. 
And so Jesus says, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband. You want the living water? Go call your husband. And of course, the question that we need to ask is, why did he tell her to call her husband? Well, on a surface level, this was proper for him to do because if he was really offering her something valuable, then her husband needed to be there to receive it. Otherwise, the potential for his intentions to be misunderstood toward her uh, could be great. However, at a more deep level, a deeper level than that, Jesus was wanting, wanting to do something entirely different. He knew her marital state. He knew that she was not about to bring her husband. That was the whole point of this. At a deeper level, Jesus wanted to show this woman the real reason that she needs the living water. And so he says to her, go call your husband. Notice how the woman responds, verse 17. I have no husband. I have no husband. Why'd she say that? I have no husband. Why did she say that? Well, I suspect it was because she wanted the gift that Jesus was offering. And the whole business would frankly be less complicated if she portrayed herself as unmarried. I mean, if I'm unmarried, I'm free, I'm single, give me the gift. Just give it to me. There ain't anybody else who has to prove it. Nobody's going to misunderstand. Just give me the gift. And besides, what she said was technically true. She was not, quote, married, unquote, right? She's not married. Nevertheless, her, watch this, her technical truth was nothing more than a, sm a smokescreen. Her technical truth was nothing more than a smokescreen. Oh, beloved. I was reading John Piper this week, and he said something that gripped me on this point. He said this, mark it. There is something that almost always goes hand in hand with secret sin, namely the devious, subtle manipulation of language to conceal the truth. Devious people don't usually lie. It's too risky. They deceive by the way they use the truth. Hmm. Now there's something to ponder for the rest of the day. We've all done that, a little half-truth, to salve your conscience, to give you a defensive position so if you were ever accused of lying, you can say, but that's not what I said. Mark this, beloved, there is, there is something that almost always goes hand in hand with secret sin. It's the misuse of truth. But Jesus saw right through it. And he was fully aware of how she was deceiving or attempting to deceive him with the truth. And now the curtain comes down. Because look at his response. He says this, verse 17. You have correctly said, just say correctly, insert truthfully. You have truthfully said, I have no husband. For... You have had five husbands, and the one who, 
and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Watch, watch this last phrase. This you have said truly. Don't you love Jesus? I mean, talk about the master communicator. Um, I admire, I, I love guys who can communicate well. I, I can't hardly even read it and get it right. But when Jesus speaks, everything is perfect. Perfect. I mean, talk about bold. Jesus climbing into your life and exposing what needs to be exposed. This was bold. This was bold. She wasn't asking for that. She didn't want to talk to him in the first place. He initiated the conversation. And now he's just laid her heart bare, laid her past bare. But notice how he does it. He does it tactfully and graciously. Twice he compliments her for telling the truth. Even though at the same time he is unequivocally exposing her dishonesty. What you say is correct, that you have no husband. The fact is you have five. And the one you're living with now is not. You have spoken truly. You see, no one can hide their heart from Jesus. Nobody can hide the true heart of yours from Jesus. We may be able to fool others, but we can never fool him. He always knows what's really going on at the level of your imagination, at the level of your motivation. He knows what's there. And he knew everything about this woman. Now, for those of you who just heard what I said and think, I hate being exposed. I hate the fact that he knows everything. I hate the fact that I know everything. I don't want God to know everything. Beloved, do not despair. He knew everything about this woman before he approached her. And he came to give her life. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. Life. He always knows what's really going on at the level of our motivation. He knew everything about this woman. He, know, he, he knew most of all that she would never benefit from the living water until that leaky, broken cistern of hers, which she had hewn out with her own hands, was fully exposed. Until that happened, she's stuck. And so are you and I when we get into that position. Well, some of you are hearing my voice right now and You've come up with all kinds of clever ways to use the truth to hide the sin that's killing you. And it's time to come clean. You want revival of the heart? It'll only come with honest confession of sin and a brokenness before God that is willing to let him do, with what, do what he will with your sin and with you. It is likely that everyone in your life thinks that you're a pretty good Christian, that you know the truth. You've deceived others, and you've probably deceived yourself into thinking that the sinful thing that you were involved with is, is really okay, and God doesn't care. And he does. And he knows. And if you are hearing my voice right now, that's no accident. The Lord Jesus is speaking to you 
through his word. And me. And me. And perhaps what rules your heart is not something inherently sinful. Perhaps it's some good thing that you've turned to for refuge, comfort, satisfaction, meaning, purpose, identity instead of God. There's nothing inherently wrong with sports or appropriate entertainment or taking a nap or eating a bowl of ice cream or working hard. Listen, the Word of God makes it clear. God has given us all things to enjoy. But it doesn't say he's given us all things to worship. These are all good things that God has given us. But at the moment you discover that that thing is displacing God, when it becomes what you consistently turn to in time of trouble, when you start seeking from it what God has promised to give, and when you find yourself turning away from your God-ordained duties and delights, most importantly, his church, his word, worship, obedience, and prayer, when you find yourself turning to those things so that you can enjoy that thing rather than him, then know for certain that that thing has subtly been transformed from being your personal interest to being your personal idol, your functional savior, your God. And I understand that but this can work on many levels. It can work on a very minimal level where you find your heart being drawn to something that's good. And those are easy to deal with. Or you can, there are other things like addictions to alcohol or, or anything else in that category, life-dominating sins that are hard. But they all come from the same root. They all come from the same root. This is the predicament that the woman at the well is in. Five marriages. Five. Let that sink in. Five. Now, I know we have people in our body who have been married twice. And God loves you as much as he loves me. And God is concerned about your marriage as much as he's concerned about my marriage. But especially those who, of you who have been married more than once. Imagine five times. Five times. And not only that, there's a sixth man now. Five marriages and the sixth man she's living with is not her husband. Now, I don't think it's plausible to assume that the five former husbands died. Um, unless it was at her hands, which I don't think there's any evidence of that. And the reason I think they probably didn't die was because Jesus, if they had died, Jesus probably wouldn't be pouring salt into that, into that wound, right? And he would have been ministering grace in a different way than this. No, no, no. Problem here is that the issue is worship. The issue is sin. And they always go together. Um, I don't think they died. I think he was going after her idol. And by the way, this is what Jesus did with um, the rich young ruler. Remember that? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, how can I have eternal life? He says, you know the law. I've done the law ever since my youth. What more should I do? And Jesus went after him. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll have eternal life. You say, well, that's, that's pretty high standard. Yes, but consider this. Let's complicate it a little more. You think that's a really high standard? Watch this. 
when he was speaking to Zacchaeus, remember he was in Zacchaeus' house? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I must come to your house today. He goes and he has a meal at the tax collector's house, Zacchaeus. And something happens to Zacchaeus' heart. We don't know how or what part of the meal. But just being in the presence of Jesus, hearing Jesus talk, he must have known something about the message of Jesus previous to that. And little Zacchaeus jumps to his feet and he says, Lord, I am going to give half of everything I have to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay him back four times. And you know what Jesus said? You remember? He said, no, no, give everything you have to the poor. Is that what he said? No, it's not what he said. He said, behold, salvation has come to this house. He's willing to give half. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought he told the other guy to give everything. Different idol. Different idol. Different issue of the heart. And he's going to deal with each person with the issue of their need. And that's where he is with this woman. Why did he call for her husband? That's the, that's the very issue. What are you going to other than God for your identity, your, your sense of purpose and existence? And for her, for the rich young ruler, Money, property, respect. For Zacchaeus, uh, I don't know what. We don't know a lot about him, but it was certainly greed. And this woman, I don't know what am I going to do. I've lost my husband. I've lost my husband. I've lost my husband. What am I going to do to get another one? I'll do whatever I have to do to get another one. And that didn't work out. You know why it didn't work out? Because the second one leaked as much as the first one. The third one leaked as much as the second one. The fourth one leaked as much as the third one. And now she's on number six. And it's not, she's not getting the point. She hasn't to this time perhaps even been confronted with the truth until someone loved her enough to do it. And she didn't realize that her problem was that she was she was drinking out of a broken cistern, which she had hewn out with her own hands. But you look at her situation and you think, to what she could, could she have turned? What alternative does she have? I mean, she's a woman living in Samaria, and for whatever reason her previous marriages have ended, I mean, where, where can she go? The only thing she knows to do is find another man. She feels perhaps trapped in this cycle of emptiness and guilt and shame. It's all hidden and bottled up in her heart. And she doesn't want anyone, not even herself, to see it. It's there. It's nagging. It's eating at her insides. It's painful. And the thought of having that exposed is even more painful. And you know what Jesus does because he loves her? He enters into her broken life. He reaches into her heart. He, he grabs hold of the darkest, vilest thing he can find. He jerks it out of her, and he throws it on the table. And he doesn't ask, please, because he's Lord. And beloved, that's, that's what God does with us. And that's what he needs to do with us. Because that's what we desperately need. You know, this isn't just about unbelievers. 
because all of us have hearts that wander. It's just the, the unbeliever has no hope because they're without God in this world. But even with God, oh, how our hearts are prone to wander. The glorious thing is we have an advocate with the Father, the man, Christ Jesus, the Son of God who came to give us life so that we don't have to run to our broken cisterns to find that old stagnant water that produces nothing good for us and only gives us temporary pleasure and numbs the pain of our souls. But here's Jesus offering living water. Notice how the woman responds. I love this. The woman said, verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> um, you know everything about my life? This was a slick change of topic. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> and then she does it again. Before Jesus can get a word in edgewise, she changes the topic again. Our fathers, verse 20, worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What about that? What about that, Jesus? And you're gone. What does that have to do with her five husbands? That's the point. It has nothing to do with her five husbands. You know what we're going to see next week, though? Jesus is so amazing. So amazing. I, I, I know we sometimes, every time we come here, we say Jesus is worthy of our worship. We talk about him being the creator and God. And, but when you see him in conversations like this, when I dive into this and see the interplay between, her, between him and this very sharp woman and how she navigates away from him, and he doesn't say, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Come back with me. Let's talk about the guy you're living with. He just goes. Take me anywhere you want me to go, and I'm going to expose your heart. Take me anywhere you think you want to go to be safe. I'm still there. And I know what to do with you. I know what your heart needs, and I am committed to getting you there. So leave. I'll follow. And so he just goes with her. She's going to talk about worship. That's perfect. Because that's the whole issue. It's not the guy you're living with, it's what you worship. And the reason you're dissatisfied, the reason that you're bouncing from husband to husband to husband, because you and probably him and all the other guys, guys were worshiping a false god. In the beginning, they worshiped you, and you worshiped them. But as you kind of got to know each other, you began to realize, oh, you know, I now am worshiping a different God, and you're worshiping something else. And, and so now we have conflicting idolatries. This is what happens in Hollywood all the time. Why do you think, you know, they get married, and they divorce, and they marry, and divorce? Why do they get married? Because they're worshiping at the same altar. As soon as there's conflict in their worship, they begin to think, oh, I've just fallen out of love. No, no. You're just not worshiping the same God. And that's true of false gods, and it's true of the true God. But the issue is worship. You want to talk about worship? Let's go. And what's he going to say about worship? Well, 
I was tempted, and I have notes that will get us through all the way down to verse 26, where the climax happens, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. But I cannot do justice to that in 10 minutes. So here's where we're going to leave it. Today, when you leave here, I want you to go home, and I want you to ask yourself, how's my relationship with the Lord? As a believer, as an unbeliever, What's my relationship with Christ like? Do I love him? Is it joyful? Do I love to spend time with him? Do I pray? Do I love to sing with him, to him? Do I enjoy his word? Do I meditate on his word? Do I respond to his word? Do I make time in my day for him? Because I want to. Because I love to. Because he's my God. He is my fountain of living water. I find life in him. And then ask yourself this question. You may say, I love that and I, and I desire it and it's pretty sporadic and it's on again, off again. Then I would just say to you, you're in the battle. I just wonder if you're, if you're being faithful. If you're gaining some victory there. And so here's the other thing to ask yourself. What is it that, that my heart gravitates to as soon as I get up in the morning? What is it that my heart gravitates to when I have a minute to myself? What is it that if I were to lose that, I would be unhappy? Or if I could gain that thing, then I would be happy. And ask yourself, in that list that you come up with, is the answer to each and one of those questions, God, Christ, God, his word, God, his people, God? I mean, if that's not the thing that you're finding your identity in, if you're finding your meaning and purpose in life, then I would suggest to you, you need to consider whether or not you have a functional savior who is not God at all. And whether or not you have been all along drinking from a broken cistern that you have hewn with your own hands. And the reason that your relationship with Christ isn't as fresh and alive and powerful and transformative is because you're not even drinking out of the well. And you can. You can. Because Jesus is offering it to you. Well, Father, we praise you that Christ's love for sinners like me compels him to expose the addictive substitutes that keep us from drinking living water. And for our own joy, our own happiness in him, grant us, I pray, Father, eyes that can see clearly into our own hearts Grant us a desire to know you more than we know ourselves and to delight in you more than we delight in anything so that anything and everything could be taken away from us and if we still had you, we would be satisfied. Oh, Father, be glorified in this. This is, this is not easy for humans whose hearts are inherently sinful and prone to wander. But, oh, Father, we, we don't, only have sinful hearts, we have a Holy Spirit who indwells us, 
we have the person of Christ resident in us. And therefore, we have permanent and continual access to the fountain of living water. May we drink deeply from the river of salvation today and every day for the glory of Jesus and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.